0: We are today in the book of Revelation, which is something we don't usually, well, I'll put it this way. Revelation is a book of the Bible that people stumble over in a couple of different ways. It's a book of the Bible that some people, some Christians just avoid like the plague. They just say, oh, that's a dark, scary book. I don't know what it's about. I'll just leave that to the experts. That's a mistake. God put it in the scriptures for all of his people, and that includes you. And other people who are obsessed with Revelation and with the other prophecy uh, passages in Scripture, and they try to watch the news and apply everything they see in the news to something they see in the Scriptures as if they can figure it all out. If I can, if I can just put all the pieces together, if I can just figure out what all the symbols mean, then I'll know what's going to happen. And that's not what it's for either. Uh, but w- before I get into what it really is supposed to be about, let me just ask you this question. I want you to wrestle with this for a minute. Don't answer out loud. But if you knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Christ was returning today, that this, today is the last day of our present earth, everything's going to be different after this, the end of human history as we know it, how would you feel about that? Now, I realize if you're sharp, you know. No one can know the day or the time. Jesus even told us that. Don't even try. It's not going to happen. You don't know when it's going to happen. He's going to come at a time you don't expect, okay? And if you ever hear a pastor saying that he knows when it's going to happen or anybody else, walk away from that person right then. If I ever say anything like that, fire me, please. You'll be doing me a favor, all right? But just for the sake of this little mental exercise, When you think about the return of Jesus and the end of this present age, what is the predominant emotion that leaps into your heart, into your mind? Be honest with yourself. I'm not asking you to answer out loud. Be honest with yourself because it's a really good way to gauge where you are spiritually. Some of you, no doubt, feel a little bit of fear, maybe a lot of fear because you don't know what that's going to be like or what's going to happen afterwards, or what's going to happen to you afterwards? And if so, we'll talk about it a little later. You can get that straight today. Some of you feel sad. I know I was there when I was a younger man, a younger Christian, and I knew that I should be excited about the return of Jesus, but all I could think was, but if he comes back today, I won't get to do these things over here. I won't get to experience these things over there. I won't get to get married. I won't get to watch kids grow up. I won't get to et cetera. If you're sad about the return of Christ, that's another issue that we'll deal with in a little bit. Some of you may say, man, when I think about it, all I can think of is, thank God, I'm ready to get off this terrible, God-forsaken world. But what does God want you to feel? All right, that's what I want to talk to you about today. What does God want you to feel? And and that's what we're going to see. We are in a series about the doxologies in Scripture. A doxology is any time... A person of God, a man or woman of God, just spontaneously praises Him. No agenda. They're not asking for anything. They're just telling God or telling others about God how good He is. And the whole point of this is you and I were made to worship. This is what we're made for. Above all else, we were made to commune with God, to connect with Him, and to, glory, to take glory in Him and to enjoy Him forever. And so when we worship Him in this life, that's when we're at our best So we're hoping to inspire you through this series to connect with God. The next two, today and next week, are both going to be out of the book of Revelation. And again, a lot of people get that book wrong. I think the best place to start when you're reading Revelation is to approach it by saying, what did it mean to the first people who read it? The mistake we make is in thinking that it was written to right now that everything that's happening in the news applies to what's in the Revelation. And so we make fools of ourselves by trying to think, okay, he's coming back in the next seven days because. But instead go to it and say, what was this book intended to do in the first place? And I'll tell you, Revelation was written to a group of Christians, specifically Christians in in present day Turkey who were under a lot of pressure, who, who were outnumbered, who were discouraged, who were just about to face real persecution from Rome for the very first time. And Jesus, through John, writes this letter to them to say, don't give up because you're gonna win. Don't give up because we're on the winning side. Don't give up, it's gonna turn out well. I know how it ends and I'm going to tell you. And that's what Revelation is about. It's a book of hope, but it's also a book of worship. It's also a book of praise. There is more praise and doxology and singing and worship and Revelation than any other book in all the Bible other than Psalms itself. In fact, it begins with a doxology, and I want to show that to you this morning. So first, for Revelation 1 verse 4 begins this way, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. So it's pretty simple really? John must have had preachers like me in mind because he gave us three points to look at. He, he tells us what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus is doing for us currently, and what Jesus will do for us someday. And that's what I want to talk about. There's a lot here. I'm going to be quoting a lot of scripture. It's going to be on the board if you, if you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, and I, I encourage you to write some of those scriptures down and look at them in greater detail later because I'm going to have to cover it fast. You don't have time today to daydream, okay? So stay with me. If you get lost or if I don't explain something well, please come ask me later and I will be glad to do my best to uh, explain it better. All right? So, first of all, what he has done. Let's talk about what Jesus has done in the past according to John. He gives Jesus three titles that tell us what Christ has done. First of all, he calls him the faithful witness. What is a witness? We all know because we watch uh, Law & Order, we watch CSI, we, we watch uh, true crime shows or listen to true crime podcasts. What is, what is a witness? A witness is someone who tells what they have seen, in that case, a crime. Jesus is the faithful witness because he came to us and he told us what he knew about God. He told us more about God. He told us better things about God, more true things about God than anybody who ever existed because he was God. In human flesh. He was God come down and he said, let me tell you about my father. Let me tell you what God is like. And he was telling us the truth. And believe it or not, the truth was good news. Jesus preached the gospel. The gospel is a word that means good news in Greek. And what is the good news? The good news is you don't have to win God over because he's already on your side. He is already on your side enough so that he has sent me to come into the world and die in your place, to take your place so that you can be his forever. Jesus was the faithful witness, and faithful in the sense that uh, a faithful witness is someone who doesn't change their story when times get tough. And Jesus didn't change his story. In fact, he went to his very death on a cross for his gospel, for our sakes. He's the faithful witness. Number two, he's the firstborn from the dead. What that means is Jesus was the first person ever to beat death There were others in the Bible, you can name stories like Lazarus, most famously, who were raised from the dead, but they later died again. Jesus is the first person to raise himself from the dead and then never die again. And because of him, we know we have a resurrection coming. Uh, In in the words of an old Christian song that that I I love, uh, death, because of Jesus' death, is now an angry dog that's missing all its teeth. It can bark, it can scare you, but it can't hurt you. And that's death for us who are in Christ Jesus. He is the firstborn from the dead. And then third, he is the ruler of kings on earth. Now, let me tell you what this doesn't mean. This is not a reference to the divine right of kings. We do not believe that as as Bible-believing people. If we believed in that, there wouldn't be a United States of America, would there? It doesn't mean that anybody who is in the Oval Office or anybody who's on a throne or anybody who is in a seat of power is automatically right because Jesus is their ruler. Now, we know this. We know that human beings are just human. All humans are sinful, and and thank God we live in a country where we can disagree with our rulers. We can, in fact, vote them out of office if we think that that's the right thing to do. What does it mean, then, when Jesus says, or when John says Jesus is the, the, the ruler of the kings of earth? It means two things. It means, first of all, every ruler who's ever ruled will someday answer to him, will be accountable to him. And aren't you glad for that? But number two, it also means that in spite of and sometimes through the rulers of the earth, Jesus makes his will done. Jesus gets his will done on earth. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're in a country with someone who's trying their best to serve God or somebody who's trying their best to destroy the work of God. I'll give you a perfect example. Look at China today, a government that is doing its best to Prevent the spread of Christianity and yet Christianity is spreading like wildfire. Iran is another example. Jesus does what he wants regardless of human rulers. We see it in the Bible all over the place but one of the best known examples is when uh, Caesar Augustus, right? First century, ruler of Rome, most powerful man on earth, called himself, literally called himself the son of God. Humble guy, right? Caesar Augustus decides one day out of the blue, I think I will have a census throughout all my empire, all of my vast territories. Everybody will be required to go to their hometown and register. That way I'll know who all I have in my kingdom, and I'll get some money out of it, some revenue. And because of that decision, a certain carpenter in Nazareth named Joseph takes his fiance, and together they go to Bethlehem, and that's where Jesus is born. Because of a decision of a Roman emperor. Prophecy is fulfilled in the birth of the Messiah in in Bethlehem, just like Micah decreed. And I bet Caesar Augustus thought that was his decision, but it wasn't. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, there's three more things. That's what he has done, but now let's talk about what he is doing now. What is Jesus doing now? Verse 5 says, He loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom and priests, to his God and Father. He loves you more than you will ever be loved by anybody else. He loves you enough to die for you. That's why it says he loves us and freed us, set us free by his blood. By his blood, we are set free from our sins, from our penalties, from anything that could ever stop us or hold us down. God loves you enough. He loves you more than life itself. He loves you enough that he'd rather die for you than live without you. That's The message of Jesus. And when it says he's freed us from our sins by his blood, I bet I could pass around a microphone. And I won't do that because I don't want to invade your privacy and we don't have time. But there's probably 300 or so people around in this room. You would hear at least 250 stories. At least 250 stories of the ways Christ has set people free. And then when you go to someplace like China or someplace like Iran or sub-Saharan Africa or, or South America where the gospel is just exploding, people by the thousands are being set free by the blood of Christ. Hallelujah. But then we get to that, that, that phrase, he has made us a kingdom and priests. What is that about? Because when we think of priests, we think of a Roman Catholic priest or an Episcopal priest and, and they wear particular clothing and they have a particular calling And that's what we think the priesthood is about. And it is in certain denominations, but what none of that existed when John was writing this. John was writing about Old Testament priests. In the Old Testament, the priests of Israel were normal men. They were men who who happened to be descended from Aaron, the brother of of Moses. And so they had this calling. They had day jobs. They, They took care of their families. But their real calling was to reconcile people to God. See, this is something a lot of people don't realize even after they've read the Old Testament. Ordinary guys like me couldn't offer sacrifices. If I had been a first century Israelite or an Old Testament Israelite and I had sinned against God and I wanted to get right with God, I couldn't just take my best bull and and go to the temple and offer it in sacrifice on the altar. I wasn't qualified. Only the priest could do that. So in reality, what a priest did was they stood between God and humans and brought them together. What Jesus is saying through John here is, I have made all of my children priests. There's no, there's no uh, people who have the title priest anymore in my kingdom because everybody's a priest, male, female, old, young, rich, poor, red, yellow, black, and white, right? We're all priests of God. And what that means is our primary calling, we probably have a day job, we probably have other responsibilities, but our primary calling, what we're here to do is to reconcile people to God to take everybody who God brings into our lives and say, what can I do? Right now, you're this far from God. I wanna at least get you this far away. I wanna at least bring you as close as I can to being made right with him. That's my calling. As he says, as Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Think about that. Most important mission in the world. And Jesus says, well, I give it to you. You're my, you're my, you're my team. You're my squad. You will do it. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. That is the cry of our hearts. We all know what an ambassador is, right? It's someone who is from here, but they go and they live in Japan. They live in Argentina. They live in Albania. They live um, in Guatemala, wherever God sends you. And they represent this place. We as God's people, we live here, but we're not from here. This world is not our home. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're ambassadors on behalf of heaven to Conroe, Montgomery County, Texas. And you may say, well, this is a great place. It's still Babylon, folks. Our Jerusalem is in heaven. That's where we're from. And we represent people. And our job, our primary calling is in everything we do to show people how much better it is where we're from than where we actually live so that they'll say, how can I go there with you? How can I go and live in the kingdom that you are from? That's our job. That's our task. That's how we are a kingdom and priests of God. That's what Jesus is doing through you right now. And let me just tell you this. And some of you need to hear this. I don't know which ones. I just know some of you need to hear this. We are going to fail, all of us, in, in a variety of ways. We're going to be rejected a thousand times by a thousand different people. We're going to feel discouraged. But here's three things that nobody in this world or anywhere else, can take away from you. You are loved by God with an everlasting love more than life itself. You are set free by His blood forever. And you are given the responsibility and the privilege of being part of His plan to redeem this world forever. That's you. And if nothing else good ever happens to you, you have those three things, and that means you have a good life. All right, that's what Jesus is doing in and through us now. So let's talk about what he will do in the future, all right? This is the exciting part. The other part was great. This is even more. So remember, okay, some of you are in school right now. Remember those of us who are out of school. We've, we've outgrown the education system, and, and we've gotten to this point in life, sad to say, where time is going too fast, where you turn around and, oh, no, oh, no, it can't be summer already. Oh, no, now it's 2024. Time, please stop. My kids have grown. Oh, no. Time goes too fast. But that's not true when you're in school, is it? When you're in school, time goes so slow. Remember remember being in algebra class, no offense to the math teachers in the room, you're wonderful, God, God gave you a calling, and I'm glad you know what you know. Um, but remember when you were in algebra class and you'd look over at the clock and you'd go, wait a second, I just, I just looked and it was 3.05. How is it now 2.45? How did that happen? Why is time going backwards? And some of you are like, well, that's what happens when you preach, Jeff. But um, what gets you through it? When you're in school and it seems like your school day will never end and it's Monday, not only, is it, not only is it a long day, but you've got four more before the weekend. What keeps you going? What keeps you going is the knowledge that nothing can stop If you're in the fall, nothing can stop Christmas from coming in those two beautiful weeks of vacation. And if it's the spring like it is now, nothing can stop summer vacation. Man, when you're a kid, is there anything in the world better than summer vacation? Just the knowledge that you're free for all those weeks. That's what you were experiencing as a child is what the Bible calls hope. Hope in the biblical sense is the sure and certain expectation of something that you know is coming but you don't have it yet. And it's enough to keep you from giving up. So when you were a kid, and it might be the worst day of your life, I mean, you, got, you know you're running a D minus at best in the class. Uh, some kid stole your lunch money. The girl you really, really like just told you she really, really wants to be friends. It's a terrible day. And yet you can say, but I'm one day closer to summer break. Nothing can stop that. What is our hope as followers of Christ. What is the big main thing we're looking forward to? That makes all the difference, is what you put your hope in. Verse 7 says it. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I asked you at the beginning, how does that make you feel? When you think about it, yeah. Well, let me, just, let me just walk through those options I talked about earlier, though, because we need to touch on those. If you're scared, if you're worried, if you don't know what's going to happen and, and what's going to happen to you, please come talk to me afterwards. I'm not the only one with the answers, believe me, but I do know the answers to this question, and I'd love to share them with you. We'll have an invitation hymn. As soon as I'm done preaching, I'll also be standing out there after the service is over in the uh, Next Steps area. Love for you to, before you leave here, get to where you can say, the return of Christ is not something I'm afraid of, it's something I'm looking forward to. And that can happen for you today. It'll be the best thing that ever happened to you. If, on the other hand, you're sad. Again, I was there. There was a time in my walk as a Christian, as a young man in Christ, where I knew I should be excited about Christ's return, but instead I was sad about all the things I would miss. You know how much, how how ridiculous that notion is. It's, It's like somebody gives you an all expenses month in Tahiti and you're boarding on the plane and you say, oh man, I haven't seen all of the airport yet. I mean, that's exactly what it's like. It's like, I heard there's a, there's a McDonald's in Terminal D, and I just want to see if, you know, the, the McNuggets over there taste nothing like chicken like other McNuggets taste in the real world. I, I haven't experienced that yet. So, well, that doesn't make any sense compared to what you're going to experience. If we are sad, when we think of the return of Christ, it doesn't mean we're bad people. It just means we're, we're too caught up in the things of this world. That doesn't make God love us any less, but it makes him want to show us what's Lasting, what's real. Because when you put your faith, when you put your hope in things that are temporary, there's a 100% guarantee you'll be disappointed. Because temporary things, by nature, fail. But when you put your hope in what doesn't fail, you cannot possibly be disappointed. So if if sadness is the emotion you experience, confess it to God. Just tell him, Lord, I know that I'm too in love with the things of this world because every time I think about your return, I get a little bit sad. I want you to put it off until I've had this experience or done this thing or or accomplished this thing. Lord, change my heart. Help me to to get excited about your return. Help me to set my mind on the things of heaven and not just the things of earth. And y'all, I hate to say this, even the desire to get out of this world, the relief that says, I want to get off this, this broken planet, even that's not quite where God wants us to be. So where does God want us to be? By the way, why do I say that? And, and the reason why that's a shock to us is if you're like me, you grew up in a Christian environment that constantly emphasized hey, this world's rough, but someday we're going to die and be with Jesus. Or this world's rough, but someday he's going to come and rapture us out of this place. Let me tell you about those two ideas, okay? Number one, there are only two places I know of in the whole Bible that talk about what happens to us when we die. If you can come up with another one, please tell me. I will not be offended. I'll be glad. The only two I can think of, Luke 23, verse 43, where Jesus is dying on the cross the man dying next to him cries out for mercy, and Jesus looks at him and says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. The other one, 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul is talking about his desire to go from this body to the new body. He doesn't want to get out of this house. He wants to go straight to his new house. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But then he says, but I know that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And that's all he says. Now, those two truths are incredibly comforting, incredibly encouraging, because I've lost family members, I've lost, goodness, too many friends to count, and it's good for me to know they're with Jesus, they're in a place with no sin, they're in a place with no pain. But you would think that if that's our hope, if that's what we should be looking forward to, we would have more information, but it's not. That's not even the best part. And now let me talk about the rapture. And if you're not familiar with it, the rapture is an idea that someday Jesus is going to just spontaneously snatch all the Christians, all the followers of him out of this world and we'll be in heaven for a time of tribulation on earth. And then the end comes. And that's a very common belief today for the last hundred years. I'd say it's pretty much the most common belief about the end times among Bible-believing Christians. I will, however, say There's very few passages in Scripture that talk about a rapture, and those that are, for most of Christian history, have been read a different way. So I'm not trying to talk you out of the idea of a rapture. If that's what you believe, I'm fine with that. I'm telling you, that is not our hope. There's nowhere, put it this way, nowhere does Jesus ever say, hey, follow me, and you'll go to heaven when you die, or follow me, and I'll get you out of this God-forsaken planet. He doesn't say that. When the apostles were preaching their their sermons, their gospel sermons, winning people to Christ, their pitch was never, if you just pray this prayer, you can go to heaven when you die. Or hey, let's all pray and, and, and ask God to come and get us out of this world. No, what did they pray? Come Lord Jesus, come back. What did Jesus say the night before he died in John 14? I'm coming back to receive you to myself so that where I am there, you may also be. I am coming back to you. That's the hope. The hope is Jesus is coming back here. The hope is not evacuation from a failed planet. The hope is the redemption of this world. The redemption of this world. Now, what does that look like? This is the fun part. Isaiah 11, 6-9. Again, this is just a taste. But Isaiah 11, 6-9 says, The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Can you picture this? The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We live in a world right now that is messed up on several levels. You don't, have to, you don't have to spend much time in nature to see that nature's red in tooth and claw, that, that animals kill one another, and they, they don't like us much either. And, and the world seems to be angry with us, with tornadoes and earthquakes and, and famines and droughts. But we're headed for a world where every blade of grass, every grain of sand, every molecule, every atom praises God, glorifies God, functions the way it was intended to, where even the animals get along with each other and with us, where the world is at harmony with itself. But that's not even the best part. We don't just get a new world, we get new bodies. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of the dead, our own personal Easter Sunday that's coming up when Jesus returns. But let me just read you three verses, verses 42 through 44 talking about the new body, it says, and by the way, Paul knows, we're going to want to know what is our new body like? Is it going to be six foot four? Am I going to be able to jump tall mountains? Am I, am I, going, to, am I going to have zero percent body fat? And it doesn't tell us any of that stuff, right? Because he's not concerned with those kinds of things. Instead, here's what it says. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. When it, What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Note, He's picturing our present bodies as if our bodies are just seeds. When a seed is planted in the ground, it comes back as something different, something better. What is sown, it is sown perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Someday we will possess bodies that, that cannot get old that cannot get hurt, that cannot get sick, that will never die. And even better than that, that will not sin. We'll have, we'll have been redeemed from all of that. And that's not even the best part. Revelation 21, 3-4 through four says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's talking about an intimate relationship with the Father, like nothing we've ever had before. And I'll admit to you, when I was younger, and I knew this was a bad thing, when preachers would talk about, wouldn't it be exciting to be with Jesus? And I would think, yeah, but I sure hope there's football up there. I sure hope I can still eat cheeseburgers. You know, I, still, I sure hope this and this and that. I was thinking about earthly things, and, and I hope they're up there. And there's nothing wrong with asking those questions took me a long time to realize, you know, being with Jesus is going to be better than all of that because who invented laughter and good food? Who invented football and cheeseburgers and hugs with people you love and every good thing you've ever had? It's him. So why not, instead of enjoying from a distance the things he gives you, why not go to the one who gives them, the source of all good things? It's like, it's like right now our father lives at a distance from us and he's sending us every good thing we've ever had. And Someday we'll get to be with the one who sent us all that good stuff and experience his love face to face. And I guarantee you, I don't know much, but I guarantee you all our concerns about, oh, will I be able to play golf up there? We're gonna get there and think how silly of me because this is better than any of that. This makes all of that basically irrelevant. And you might say, okay, Jeff, but then why does it say that all the tribes, when they see Him coming on the clouds, all the tribes will wail? Because that makes it sound like people will be upset to see Him. And sad to say, many will be. I can't deny that the day that I'm talking about is the ultimate good news will be ultimate bad news for some. And in fact, John is is referencing an older, much older prophecy from Zechariah. Zechariah 12.10 the old prophet Zechariah, hundreds of years before Jesus, hundreds of years before anybody ever thought of crucifying a man. He writes in Zechariah 12.10, when they look at me on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. You think that's talking about Jesus? You're absolutely right. But it's also talking about the kind of deep down sadness that you would feel if you lost your only child. Why will people be sad when Christ returns? Because there are certain people who have chosen to go against him. There are rulers of this world who have led uh, with, with their egos instead of their hearts. They've trampled over their people to get power. There are people who have persecuted the people of God. There are people who have robbed from others. There are people who have, who have not cared what they did to somebody else as long as they got what they wanted. And when they see Jesus coming on the clouds, they will mourn and wail because they'll realize at that moment, I bet against the Son of God and I lost. I bet on myself instead of the Son of God and I lost. And now I will miss out on every good thing he died to give me. What it's talking about is the end of evil forever. You look at our world, you want to know what's wrong with our world? Look in a mirror, it's us. It is us. This was a perfect world until we showed up. And all that hate and all that bigotry and all that selfishness and all that violence will be banished from the world to come. Christ will have purged it through his death on the cross, through his redemptive work. That's what we're looking at. And that is our hope. And that's what we have to look forward to. And when you think about Jesus returning, and you should think about it often, I think it'd be good for us to think about it every day. You should be filled with joy. A joy that nothing else can give you and that nothing can take away from you. In fact, that kind of joy, when you think about Christ returning, ought to make you want to sing.